It's amazing. Uh, just when Chad said this is the 99th meeting, um, I immediately texted my wife and just the head blown emoji guy. That's just stunning. I'm, I'm just blown away by that fact right there. So it is such an honor uh, to be back in this city and to be uh, with you guys. And um, yeah, I work at a place called Porter's Call Porter. The Porter was the layman who lived in the Benedictine monastery. And his job was really to extend hospitality to the traveler, to the passerby. And so 20 some odd years ago, my boss, Al Andrews, started an organization there in Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, he was actually one of my professors in grad school. Then he left and subsequently started Porter's Call. Uh, with the, the heart of the mission being uh, to provide care and support to and counsel to um, the passerbys in, in Nashville, Franklin, Tennessee, uh, as it turns out, a lot of times are artists, recording artists, their spouses and partners. So for 20 some odd years, that organization has provided that care for that segment of the population from a faith perspective. But we work with all um, people, all genre of music, the whole entire industry. So it's a really interesting and unique environment. And uh, I'm really deeply appreciative about being there. But when I think about being there, I couldn't imagine being there without having been here first. I arrived in Houston um, in the summer of 1990 to be a youth intern. I don't even, do you even have youth interns anymore? But I did that um, that summer in Kingwood. Uh, and I, when I arrived here in the summer of 1990, I never would have thought I was going to be here until the summer of 2017. But as God would have it, that's exactly where we were at. And grew to love this city. My kids pretty much are all still here. One's often at seminary in Boston, but our family and our roots are still here. And I think of you all often, and I really do mean that. I, it's hard to imagine standing in this space and not being in, in this community um, because of, of the years and the time that I had here, but I do want you to know that I do think of you often and, and you're in my prayers. This organization is in my prayers. Your churches are in my prayers. So it is an absolute honor for me to stand here on the 99th occasion of this discussion um, to, to share with you today. So uh, what, I wanna talk about taking care of ourselves. It's really simple. To, to do that though, we have to be really present to ourselves and to the moment. And I, I feel very present to this moment, not only for my gratitude of being in here in this space with you, but to this moment in this state, in our country, with our brothers and sisters who are struggling in Uvalde. I, I really, I, I'm kind of at a loss, quite frankly, when I was leaving my office yesterday to get on the plane to come here and then landing last night and this morning's news is just, it's devastating. And uh, I, wanna, I wanna ask God to be present here with us in our time now, if you don't mind me praying, but I also wanna pray for our friends in, in Uvalde and Buffalo and Santa Ana. I mean, these 
places that are just pastors, community leaders who are in the middle of it right now. So would you join me in prayer? Ah, Lord Jesus, we're lost. Uh, we are confronting the manifestation of evil and distortion and inhumanity and violence yet again in our country upon just unthinkable circumstances. Lord, a, a school, children, 20 families right now who are just devastated. And so we, we just ask that you would be with those families and bring about the comfort and peace that passes understand, all understanding. And we pray for our friends who are leaders in those communities, Lord, that you would even now supernaturally and miraculously just begin to make them strong in the ways that they need to be strong and wise in the ways that need to be wise and discerning and just be with them, support them, Lord. Um, and, and I pray that they would be on our hearts and minds as we go throughout our day. And as we do, Lord, I pray that you would receive our hearts and our thoughts and our words as prayers. And we don't know what to pray for, honestly. I'm at a loss, but we trust that you, Lord, in your infinite wisdom, know exactly what needs to happen. So we just come to you with our helplessness, but we come on their behalf, Lord. And we ask that you'd be, this, be present with us in this time and guide us in our understanding of ourselves and, and how you've made us and how to take care of ourselves in ways that glorify you and advance what you're doing in and through us in this city. And we thank you for the privilege that it is to, to be together on this occasion in Christ's name. Amen. amen. So what, um, what plans do you have for the summer? What I would like to do is encourage you to make yourself a priority in the, in the weeks, in the days, in the months that the summer has. And, I, and I'm, I'm looking out over a room full of leaders, spiritual leaders, pastors no less. And I'm thinking about how uh, incredibly challenging your role is in the communities that you lead. I don't trust that you always appreciate how difficult it is. And I don't always trust that you weigh how heavy it actually is weighing on you. And so I'm going to come, one of the things I want to say to you this morning is it's a heavy load that you're carrying, maybe in ways that you're not fully appreciative of. And so I want to encourage you to think about ways that you can take the weeks and the months of this summer, June, July, maybe most of August, and really focus in on yourself. There, there are forces at work outside of these four walls that anticipate and are looking for and are waiting for you to fail. Um, and so we could have a whole HCPN on those forces at work that work against the, the gospel mission of the local church, but that's not my focus this morning. My focus is actually on what's going on, on 
what's going on inside of you that can make you fail? What are the things that are hidden, the patterns, the habits, the things that are threatening the call that God has upon your life to do the work that's before you? And without a concerted effort in God's grace, lavishly poured out in Jesus, let's set the context here, these unchecked habits and routines will undermine your work. And so I really just want to draw your attention to some of those places that maybe are going unnoticed. And if you spend any time with me in the early cohorts in HCPN, then you know one of my favorite passages of Scripture, which I want to read to you now and kind of set up what I want to say here, is found in uh, Romans chapter 11, verse 33. And it's the doxology that Paul concludes the first real big section of the epistle. And the very first word in that doxology is O. He's just silenced before the mystery and the beauty of the gospel that he's just written about to the congregation in Rome. And he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, therefore, he goes on, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Revelation leads to awe, leads to gratitude, leads to humility, leads to transformation. That's the context of everything that I'm about to say. Without a view of God's mercy revealed in Jesus, we have no capacity for real change. That is to say, without awe, without humility, without gratitude, there is no transformation. And when I say view, a view of, and when Paul says a view of the mercies of God, we're not talking about simply a spectator to these mercies. We're talking about participating in these mercies. Richard Lovelace, in his book, Dynamics of the Spiritual Life, says, Redemption is participatory, not imitative. It is grounded in the grace appropriated through faith, not merely on obedience. Spiritual life flows out of union with Christ, not merely imitation of Christ. As Paul describes in the rest of the chapters in Romans 12 through 16, spiritual renewal is practical, it's communal, it's deeply personal. It is rooted in the awe that is inspired by God's grace in Jesus. That's what we need to get a front row view of. And that changes everything. We've lost everything if we lose sight of who Jesus is and what he's done. 
The question isn't what would Jesus do? In other words, the question is what has Jesus done and therefore? That's the transform transformation path. Richard Lovelace continues in his book, True Spirituality is not a superhuman religiosity. It is simply true humanity released from bondage to sin and renewed by the Holy Spirit. This, he continues, is given to us as we grasp by faith the full content of Christ's redemptive work, freedom from guilt and power of sin and newness of life through the indwelling and outpouring of his Holy Spirit. True humanity released from bondage. That is, that's pretty much been my life's work. That's what I signed up for when I went to grad school and came back to Houston and, and augured in, as they say. I, that, that's why I get up in the morning. That's what I want. My true humanity released from its bondage. So God has created us as humans. Let's first acknowledge that, no more and no less, and intends us to thrive as humans for his glory. But to thrive, we must seek renewal, as Paul says, in our mind, in our body, in our spirit. And this is possible because the penalty of sin has been removed, correct? Guilt has been lifted. And, and now what we're doing is partnering with the Holy Spirit in the dismantling of the power of sin, this bondage. We're moving ever more closely to full freedom, to the one day where the presence of sin is completely removed and eradicated. So through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's grace moves us beyond striving to where we're thriving, to being true humans who worship the one true God in awe and gratitude, who are deeply connected to other human beings in meaningful relationships, and who gladly and joyfully and generously steward the resources that God has put at their disposal. These three words, relationship, worship, and stewardship, I first came across these in a small little sentence in The Challenge of Jesus by N.T. Wright, and I've been thinking about how our humanity unfolds in these three arenas for like the last 15 years. And he just does a quick brief treatment of those three words in that uh, paragraph. But what, what I want to do is actually take those big categories and I want to get into some of the nitty gritty of what does it actually mean to be more fully worshiping, more deeply connected, and more faithful in our stewardship. So where, what is, where, how does this focus our attention? How do we partner with the Holy Spirit in these areas of our life? And here's a sidebar. Why is it that it's easier for you and I as leaders in our communities to think about how we're partnering with other people in our congregations more than we think about how we're partnering with the Holy Spirit in our life? That's a problem. That's part of the problem that I'm trying to address this morning. If, if, if we just stay in the worship stewardship relationship circles, they're too big in some ways. They, they, they're too abstract. And so I want to get into what I think are four key elements of our humanity that God's created that needs to be released from bondage and requires a better understanding on our part. So the four things are this. The first one is I'm going to ask you to embrace the human that you are strengths and weaknesses alike. 
The second one is I'm going to ask you to acknowledge the fact that you are, in fact, a thoughtful person. That doesn't mean that you're the one who always writes thank you cards or thinks of saying, you know, please and thank you. But I mean something much deeper, more profound there that I'll get into in a second. The third thing is that you are an emotional person, despite what people around you may think. And then the fourth thing is that I just want to call your attention to one of the most obvious facts about all of us sitting here is that we all have bodies that need our attention. So first, embracing our humanity means embracing our strengths and weaknesses. Embracing our strengths means that we take seriously and soberly our God-given abilities to influence, impact, work, think, and all the like. It also means rejecting the conscious or subconscious assumption that admitting our weaknesses will somehow put us at a disadvantage with regards to our limitations. Any talk about human limitation can begin with just how many things are out of our control. The list of things that are out of our control is actually quite long, no? It's a long list. It's a much longer list than the things that are actually under our control. Um, this doesn't mean that we're doomed to be a victim. Far from it, actually. I would say admitting that we don't have control means we get to take up one of the key features of our humanity, which is that we're responsible. Or as Eugene Peterson broke that word down and said, we are able to respond. So when I let go of trying to be in control, then I can take up being responsible. Giving up control, taking up responsibility. One of our God-given capacities is the ability to respond to others into situations. Just think about the freedom that you have in your family, in your church, with your kids, with a delinquent parishioner, when you don't have to control for the outcome in their life. And you're just free to respond in the moment to them, their needs, their likes, their dislikes. There's, there's a lot of power control-based struggles that we get engaged in that really can zap us, no? That are unnecessary. So therefore, what we acknowledge in this giving up of control is that the strength from God's grace is found in acknowledging our limitations. This is exactly what Paul meant in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 11, when he's asking the Lord not once, not twice, three times to take the thorn from his flesh. And what God is gently reminding him of is the fact that when you're weak, Paul, then I'm strong. And this is the exact opposite place we want to live. And that's the exact place that God is bringing us back to. And I'll be honest with you, the place that I experience this most is with my family. I mean, that's the place where I feel most exposed on this front. But I definitely felt this in the church. I came to huge moments of just feeling completely at a loss of what I had to offer, or what I was going to do in the next situation. And uh, so that's a very real struggle. When it comes to our limits, we, we've got to start with this, I, I think, when we talk about limitations. I ask, I ask my clients all the time, talk to me about your limitations. 
and it's a little bit abstract. So here's what I mean by that. The first thing is that we're created in the image of God. We're not God. I mean, this is really basic, right? This is not, this particular point is not a sin problem. This is an ontological problem. This is a, this is how God created us problem. God is finite, we are, God is infinite, and we are finite. In other words, we are not all-powerful, nor all-knowing, hence our lack of control. And this opens us up to feeling extremely vulnerable. This is why Brene Brown is on the top of the bestsellers list. This is why her TED Talk has gone so viral, because so many people identify with that voice, that message that she's keyed in on, which is just like, admit it everyone already you know and it's it's really powerful it's very compelling I would submit to you this is exactly what's going down in Genesis chapter 3 whereas in Genesis chapter 2 the narrator tells us that their nakedness was not a fact um, that existed inside of shame and in Genesis chapter 3 we find out that all of a sudden their eyes are open that's like the moment right all, all that it says in that moment is that their eyes are open. And what is the first thing that they see in that moment that their eyes are open? They see their nakedness. They see their vulnerability. They see, in a sense, their weakest moment where they feel most frail. Um, the problem is, is that they see their vulnerabilities apart from the presence of God in their life. They've decided to move away from God, and now all of a sudden their eyes are open. They see these vulnerabilities apart from the presence of God in their life. This is the source of shame. And there's many different influences in our life where sin equates our vulnerability with our shame. One is religiosity. The religion of do more and try harder equates our vulnerabilities with shame because we can never get there, right? Other examples of where our vulnerability gets connected to shame is abuse and neglect in childhood. Whatever its source, Jesus reaches out to us in that moment and he says to us, Come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Where we are trying to figure out life on our own terms, Jesus is trying to reach out to us and draw us into himself. But not only, are we inf not only are we finite, but we're also fallen, correct? We make bad choices. We go our own way. We are, as Martin Luther says, bent in on ourselves. Our judgment is susceptible to distortion by ignorance, arrogance, foolishness, or bias. The fact is, is that we all make poor choices whose, qu whose consequences can vary from minor to life-altering. They can be self-inflicted or they can be far-reaching. Moreover, we believe lies, and we organize our life around those lies. Now, God tries to use other people to sort of open us up to see these blind spots. But again, we're resistant because we feel exposed. We feel like we should defend and hide versus stepping into the light. This is a primal, as much as it is a crooked, habit. And it's definitely a part of our bondage that Richard Lovelace mentioned earlier. To illustrate this, I'll just tell you a brief story. Chris walks into my office about a year ago, and the more I talked to him, the more frustrated I sensed that he was. 
And what I set out to do with him was I was trying to find a core belief or an assumption that he was working from in his life. Like, like the operational center. And we kept talking. And I asked him, I was like, can you put to words what it is that you think about this particular situation that's causing you this frust- to feel frustrated? And we went back and forth several times in our conversation. And finally, the light just like, you know, came on in his head. And he said, I alone can get it done. That's my assumption, Chad. And, it, and, it, and it's, when he said it out loud, in a sentence like that, it, it just stopped him dead in his tracks. I am the only one in my family that can fix this. And uh, so I said back to him, that means that you're all alone. And he said, yeah. And it means that you think you can actually fix all the things. And he said, yeah, that, that I do actually. This is why people don't go to counseling, by the way. <laughs> um, but it was, it was an amazing moment. And uh, the, the fact is he's actually really good at what he does. His wife is actually the artist. So he's a stay-at-home dad. And they have a, a lot of moving parts to their life, and he kind of manages all those things. Um, his wife calls him disciplined, which sounds like a compliment, and probably most days it is. But it's also a way of saying, you're not one of us. You're the guy that's all alone that's going to fix all the things. So we kept digging in around this. And uh, the fact of the matter is that Chris didn't wake up one day with this thought lodged inside of his mind. He believed this over many years, and it took shape in particular conditions. There were thoughts and behaviors that were rewarded in his life. He was the oldest child and spent a lot of time alone. His other siblings, one of whom had a severe disability, got a lot of the attention. Moreover, the older he got, his parents kind of seemed unbalanced and chaotic. They eventually got a divorce, and they actually became very petty with each other. And Chris, as the oldest child, just looked around the room and assumed that, well, I'm the only one that can fix this. And that's kind of where this stuff happens, right? This is, this is the kiln. And this is all happening before he graduates from high school. He goes on to marry a woman who's extremely successful, but who's not great with details. And there's a lot of details. And he's really disciplined. And this subtle pattern just begins to take shape and emerge. And in effect, keeps him at arm's length. He becomes really, at times, a very miserable person to be around for his family members. Because no one else is like him in this way. Man, he struggled when I pressed him to identify this core message. It took us a while to get there. I mean, when I say a while, I mean several sessions. I wanted to say to him out loud in that sentence, you're not alone and you can't fix it all. 
the thing that was amazing is I asked him, I said, do you know the passage in Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus extends an invitation to people who were standing before him? And he's a believer. He said, yeah, yeah, I know that passage. And I said to him, I said, what do you think you would have done with this thought strongly operating at the center of your world if you heard Jesus say to you and amongst the other people, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And he said, I think I probably would have thought it was for somebody else. And I said, well, to that degree, right? Then you are at arm's length from the very thing that you need, which is God's grace. That's actually what you're supposed to be taking to your family, not your well-disciplined life. A really great version of you, Chris, is a lousy version of Jesus. Right? The thing that you have to offer them is found in your own limitations. And, and he just was silenced in a way that we are when we see the mercy of God. That moment where you're caught and you realize you've been seen the whole time, but you haven't actually been all alone, that's what he was experiencing in my office that day. It's beautiful. The story of Chris really illustrates how powerful thoughts are directing our daily lives. Chris's core beliefs served as a purpose statement for him. No matter what he said his life purpose was, that was his purpose. To get it all done, to fix it alone. Challenging this core belief required precision and grace. And the gospel offers both. If we take time to identify the faulty thinking, we will uncover the lies that organize our life. Once exposed, as painful as this may be, and uncomfortable, we are open and ready for truth and grace. We can respond to Jesus' invitation. It's not for someone else. It's for me. We, need, we, we probably need a trusted friend to have these kind of conversations because we can't get there a lot of times on our own. Paul told the church in Corinth to take, take every thought captive to obey Christ. Like, Paul appreciated and understood how powerful our thinking is and how it guides our lives. This is a key way that we partner with the Holy Spirit. You becoming more mindful of your thinking over the summer is a good objective. I'm going to introduce a concept here just very briefly. It is kind of the snake in the grass when it comes to the idea that we are thoughtful people. And it's the idea of shame. Shame goes a long way in shaping our thoughts. My friend Chris was once a child who experienced shame for hoping that his parents would come through. It's that moment where you, you're embarrassed that you let your expectations get away from you. And you put all that up and you realize, like, that's not how life is actually going to go. And I'm embarrassed that I thought it was. That's shame. It's the moment where you say to yourself, well, that's the last time I'm going to expect mom and dad to come through. 
and then you set out on this new lease on life. That's shame. Dr. Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, if you haven't read that, I would recommend it, says shame is not simply an unfortunate random emotional event that came with us out of the primordial evolutionary soup. It is both a source and result of evil's active assault on God's creation and a way for evil to try and hold out until the new heaven and earth appear at the consummation of history. In other words, our thoughts are the front line in the battle for our hearts. You are a thoughtful person. You don't take it seriously enough. Thoughts go a long way in generating our emotions. Cognitive behavioral psychologist Dr. David Burns accurately points out that we feel what we think. Which brings me to my next point, and that is to say that you are an emotional person. You're a human being with strengths and limitations. You're a thoughtful person. Thirdly, you're an emotional person. If our thoughts influence how we feel, then our feelings inspire our actions and our reactions. Paying attention to what emotions our experience we're experiencing is a form of mindfulness. It's not weakness. It's not the antithesis of faith to tune into our emotions. Paying attention to our feelings to start with acknowledges how God made us. He made us with emotions. Our emotions can help us identify faulty beliefs and reasons for acting the way we do. This is why Chris showed up in my office. He was feeling frustrated. His wife was feeling frustrated. That was the direction. That was the signpost. To further illustrate how important emotions are as signposts in our transformation, let's take someone in the struggle with an addiction, for example. When a person is coming out of the fog of an addiction, managing their emotions is one of the first challenges that they face. Whatever the substance or the behavior is for the addict, the goal in that compulsive behavior is numbing emotions. So raise the highs, lower the lows or sorry, raise the lows, lower the highs. The substances and the behaviors change the way we think and they obliterate emotions from the human experience. That's what every addict is trying to do. Repeated behaviors that dampen our emotional output create neural pathways in our brain that cause our brain to steer us away from certain experiences that feels automatic and subconscious. This changes the way a person literally thinks and processes reality. If you've ever been down the road with an addict, you know how incredibly frustrating this is. Sobriety then isn't simply abstaining from certain behaviors. Instead, sobriety includes thinking differently and experiencing the full range of human emotions. Instead of denying them, sobriety acknowledged these emotions and is curious about what they're telling us about ourselves and our experiences. When you and I suppress our emotions, we're kind of in the introduction of an addiction. That's what I'm trying to say to you. All of us are actively involved in creating emotions. Emotions are constructions, not reactions. So when I get into an argument with my wife and I say to her, I'm sorry, but that's just the way you make me feel, I'm not telling the truth. 
I am actively involved in constructing that emotional space between my thoughts and my past and the current things that I'm sensing in my body. I'm calling those things what they are. No one else is doing that for me. And the reason why this is good news is because it gives us our agency back. So again, far from taking it away from us when we talk about emotions, our agency actually comes into focus when we talk about our emotions. Emotions are the product of concepts and simulations that our brain's running all the time in order to make sense of what we're actually confronting. This is like a continual work that's happening. So here's something else I just want to say about our emotions as well. Is they're not just mental states, they're actually physical states. Anxiety, by and large, is a physical manifestation in our body. When people come in my office saying they feel anxious, I assume that they mean they're feeling all the physical symptoms of anxiety, which we all are familiar with, right? Stomach issues, muscle tension, heart palpitations, trouble breathing, all those are like, you can see all those things in an MRI machine. So it does affect the way we think, but emotions in a lot of ways affect the way that our bodies actually feel. So that's my final thing here for you is, how's your body? The term mental health is misleading because it implies that we're talking about something altogether different from physical health. So it perpetuates the stereotypes and provokes thoughts and ideas like it's all in your head or it's a mental thing. This is the talk of modern people who love to compartmentalize everything but who are terribly misguided nonetheless. Trauma is a physical response to threatening situations. It's not just the person's thinking poorly about it, they literally are reliving the experience in their body. So how do we care for our body? Well, we become more mindful of our body. Now I'm in really fraught territory here. Meditation is a great way to promote mindfulness. The Mayo Clinic defines mindfulness as awareness of what you're sensing and feeling in the moment without interruption or, or judgment. Practicing mindfulness involves breathing methods, guided imagery, and other practices to relax the body and the mind to help reduce stress, end quote. While it includes the practice of meditation, I believe mindfulness can consist of mental postures that can be maintained throughout between meditative practices. The sign that we are increasingly mindful is that we don't stand in judgment over what we're thinking or feeling. We kind of sit with them as objective facts. I shouldn't feel this way, I shouldn't think this way is not helpful in other words. The question in meditation is not what should I feel, but what am I feeling? What am I thinking? What am I sensing? Take examples like breathing. Breathing is something our body does automatically. We don't have to remember to breathe. However, when we are increasingly anxious, the nature and pattern of our breathing can change, altering how our bodies function. It also changes how our brains process incoming informa information. Meditation helps to make us mindful to these basic areas of our bodies and our minds, the connections there. It affords us time to take inventory, to make changes. A four count inhale and exhale can make all the difference in a really stressful moment. It can get you off of the panic attack. 
So the, the problem in talking about our bodies is that our bodies in our modern culture are often sources of shame because they are used to promote ideals about strength and beauty, and that is not what I'm talking about. There's a lot of people who seem to be taking care of themselves, that is their bodies, but are really obsessed with their bodies. That's not what I'm talking about. There's much to say in this regard, but for the purpose here, just caring for your bodies is about being healthy and not trying to achieve a status with your body. Chasing after beauty as defined by our culture is subjugating our bodies to serious harm. It's a, it's a place that people get really stuck in with this part of this idea of caring for and being mindful of our body. Our body needs a fuel, it needs food, it needs calories. We need to move, we need to engage the strengths that God's given us in our bodies. You know, and we can commit to simple things like 30 minute walks and portion control that really help go a long way for us to be more mindful of our body. Our bodies often bear the brunt of our lack of awareness. When I ask somebody when they're in my office, how do you feel? They'll usually start going down like emotional descriptors and then I'll say, well, how's your body feel? And they're kind of at a loss. This, this is very common, especially for men. Um, so embrace the human that you are. Just don't be God. Acknowledge the fact that you're thoughtful and they're powerful. Acknowledge your emotions. What are you feeling, experiencing? And how does your body feel? What's your body need right now? I'm going to give you four things that I tell every single person that comes to my office when they leave. This is four things I want you to do. And if you do these more times in a given month or in 30 days than not, it'll make a huge difference in your life. And it's actually a way to use your phone to actually help you, your, your cell phone. I know, these things are our vices, but I'm going I'm to turn it into a tool here. So the first thing is to download the Headspace app. It's a little orange dot. You can pay for a year-long subscription and learn to meditate. It's agnostic. It's, he, the, it's not doing any kind of like spiritually contextualized meditation. It is simply the technique of being mindful. And you just kind of go through these simple little exercises with the gentleman who, you know, whose voice is on the app. So download the Headspace app and do it. Do a meditation every single morning before you walk out of the house or before you walk into the office or before you really start your day. The second thing is use your notes app to capture your gratitude throughout the day. That sounds simple, doesn't it? Simply open up the notes on your phone and type the word gratitude at the top and then just start cataloging the things for which you're grateful for when they're happening. And if you need to, just attach a picture so you remember the, set, the moment in that way. The, set, the third thing is to use your notes app and a different note to capture your feelings and thoughts throughout the day. You come out of a really stressful meeting, you go get in your car, you sit down before you actually take off, open your phone, open the notes app, and just start typing what is it that you're thinking and feeling. Just capture those. Honor the fact that they're in there. And then... Go for two long walks per week. Not runs. Don't go to the, I don't, I'm not saying go to the CrossFit gym. I'm saying go for a walk. 
there's something really helpful about just a walk at your comfortable pace. Again, uh, there are focuses at forces that are at work outside these four walls that will undermine your efforts as a pastor, but today we're focused on the things that are unfolding inside of you, calling your attention to these things. The Holy Spirit is your partner in self-care, which is done in view of God's mercies in Christ Jesus and for the glory of God. His grace brings out your true humanity and releases you from bondage on a thoughtful, emotional, physical level. Every part of your being, in other words, will need care and attention. You need this. Your family needs for you to pay attention to this, and your congregation needs for you to pay attention to this.